And let me invite you to turn in the scriptures to Psalm chapter 44. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, there should be a hardcover black one under a chair somewhere in the row in front of you. This morning we're going to be continuing our, our summer sermon series through the book of Psalms. And one of the great things about the Psalms that I appreciate significantly about them is, is how they demonstrate the full range of the human experience. That some of the Psalms are celebration poems where the psalmist is joyously praising God for what he's done. Other Psalms are, are, are those of repentance, where the psalmist is, is seeking forgiveness from God for a sin that they've committed. We see psalms of great triumph and psalms of deep sadness, and we really get the full range of the human experience in the psalms. And this is one of the reasons why the psalms are such a helpful guide for us in our prayers. You can use God's Word to help guide your own prayers as you come to the Lord. So when you're overjoyed about something, look to the psalms to give you the words to praise God and thank Him for what He's done. Or perhaps if you're feeling convicted of sin, you can turn to the Psalms to, to give you the words to pray and seek God's forgiveness. You know, as we study Psalm 44 this morning, we'll find that the psalmist is in a moment where he's really questioning God. He's questioning why God would allow evil to come upon those who are faithfully following God and seeking to do His will. That is a question that every believer needs to wrestle with. All of us from time to time need to wrestle with the fact that bad things do happen to those who are following the Lord. As a word of brief pastoral advice, I, it would be wise for you to wrestle with these questions before you experience something that makes you ask them. You know, the, the worst time to learn how to change a tire is when you're stranded on the side of I-10 with a flat tire, right? You need to learn that before it happens, the same thing, we, we need to uh, think through these questions of why God allows evil to happen to his people. We need to think about them before we come to the trials that might force us to ask them. So even if you're not presently suffering at this moment, Jesus promises that you will have trouble in this life. All of us can expect and count on going through hardship. So there's great wisdom in pondering these questions now, and I, I find Psalm 44 to be such a helpful guide to give us the words to ask these questions to the Lord. So would you hear now from God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, and life-giving word from Psalm chapter 44. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor by their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob." Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us, and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. 
You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sound of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, that we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. And it is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. Now this morning we're going to look at Psalm 44 under three simple headings, past, present, and future. So first, let's look at what the psalmist says about the past. And we need to start with the heading of that psalm, that little superscript at at the top of the psalm, where it says, To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. This title reminds us that this psalm was meant to be sung by God's people. It would have been sung originally by the whole congregation of God's people gathered in the temple for worship. But you'll notice if you look throughout the psalm that the pronouns change. There's times where Psalm 44 uses the first person plural pronouns like we and us. And there's times where it uses the singular pronouns I and me. And commentators have suggested that this song would have been sung by God's people, including the king of Israel. So it's possible that the king would have sung the portions in first person, and then the whole congregation would have sung the parts that are plural. And we don't know for sure that that's the case, but the text certainly suggests it. So the idea is that all of God's people are joining together to sing, and they start by singing about what God has done in generations past. Look again at verses 1 through 3. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their sword did they win the land, Nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm in the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So looking back into the past, the Israelites remember and recall what God has done for their forefathers. And you'll recall the big picture story of God's people as they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years until God raised up the leader Moses to free his people from slavery and bring them across the Red Sea, heading towards the promised land, and then they take a detour for 40 years in the wilderness. And then God raises up another Moses, Joshua, who finally brings the people into the promised land. And they conquer this land that God had promised for them. In battle after battle after battle, God brought the people victory. 
And so the psalmist is writing this song for the whole congregation to remember what God had done in making a way for the conquest in Canaan. And the psalmist is really calling them to remember specifically that it's God who gave them the victory. Look again at verse 3. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. It was the work of God through the Israelite armies to conquer the land. God gets the credit. Now this calls to mind that great Protestant Reformation doctrine that we call soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Meaning that everything that happens ultimately happens for the glory of God. He's the one who gets the credit. And that's what the psalmist is calling the people to remember, that God gets the credit. Now, he uses us, and praise God that he delights to use us, but it's God who gets the credit. He's the one who does the work through us. I want you to notice for a second the act of what God's people are doing as they sing these words together. The whole congregation is remembering what God has done through their forefathers and that that story has been passed down from generation to generation. The whole congregation, including young children, would have been singing these words together, meaning that the young people would have been hearing the stories of what God has done through their forefathers. You know, by God's design, this is how the church is supposed to work today. That the older generations are supposed to pass down the truth of what God has done to the next generation through the songs that we sing, the scriptures that we read, and the sermons we preach. If the ancient Israelites did this to remember battle victories, how much more should we be motivated to share the good news of the atoning work of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us? We need to be ready to share this and eager to share this with the next generation. Look what Pastor Richard Phillips helpfully comments about this. Just as the psalmist tells what he heard from his fathers about the conquest of Canaan, Christians are to remember and pass on the great saving works of Jesus Christ. If Joshua's typological salvation gave Israel hope, how much more confidence will be conveyed by its true fulfillment, the conquest of sin by the perfect life and sin-atoning death of God's Son? Just as the psalmist heard of God's saving, past saving works, our churches are to major not in telling sentimental stories or giving lifestyle tips, but in proclaiming the great saving works of God all throughout the Bible, brought to consummation through the life and ministry of the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is for us to be used by the Lord to share the truth of the gospel with the next generations. We, as the church, get the privilege of sharing the gospel with our young people. We get the privilege of being used by God to tell our children and other people's children about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done on their behalf. Which means this, young people, children, let me encourage you to listen to the voices of those who are older than you. Listen to them in Sunday school and in city group and in small group discussions. Listen to them as they tell you of God's faithfulness. When you get the chance to spend time with adults who love Christ, make note of their love for Christ. Be encouraged by their love for his word and for his church. Young people, listen to the stories of God's faithfulness 
as he's worked through the saints who've gone before us. Now, this is one of the reasons why I, as the student ministries pastor over our middle and high school students, I love having members of the church serve with our young people. I love having members of our church from every generation spend time with our young people sharing the story of what God has done on their behalf week in and week out. I know the same is true for Angela in our children's ministry. The same is true for Axel with soccer camp, that our young people need to be discipled by more than just their parents. They need the whole church. And praise God that he's faithful to use all of us to disciple the next generation. So after the the congregation would have been retelling the works of generations past, we get a brief prayer in verse 4. It says, you are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Now notice for a moment the shift in pronouns. It's likely that the king is the speaker of this prayer. If that's the case, then consider the humility it must have taken for a king to confess that in front of his people. To confess that, yes, he's the king of the nation, but there's a greater king than him. We ought to pray that the Lord would bring about that kind of humility in the hearts of our leaders today. The collective prayer together continues in verse 5. Through you we push down our foes. Through you, or through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. So in the first few verses of Psalm 44, they're, they're recounting the distant past of generations before. But in verse 5, they begin to consider the more recent past. How God has used their generation and worked through them in previous battles. So the the people are remembering that God gets the credit not just for what he did through the forefathers, but what what he's done through their life as well. Next, we see a moment where the king speaks in the first person again, followed by the congregation. He says, For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. You know, whoever this particular king of Israel was, he's exemplifying real humility here. You know, as he's led the armies of Israel, they've experienced success. But the king doesn't take credit for his own military prowess. He doesn't give credit to the accuracy of his bow and arrow or his skill with the sword, but he gives credit to the Lord. It's the Lord who has saved them from their enemies. I think there's a question we need to ask ourselves based on these verses. Where does our confidence lie? In our own strength or on the Lord? Or to put it another way, when when you see some measure of success in your life, who gets the credit? Young people, students who are still in school, when you do well on an assignment, do you cheer yourself on and say, look what I did? Look at my own smarts and brains. Or do you give credit to the God who gave you the brain he gave you to use for his glory? Parents, when we recognize the best elements of our children, do we count that as proof of our own parenting expertise? Or do we praise the Lord that he used us to raise up our children? Those of us who work, do you take credit for your productivity or do you recognize the Lord's hand of blessing upon your efforts? For all of us, do we put our trust in our own tools and in our own skills or do we give credit where credit is due to the Lord alone? Our first section looking at the past 
concludes at verse 8. It says, In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. This certainly feels like the, the close of a psalm of praise. If our psalm ended right here, we'd assume that this chapter of Scripture was one of the great victory hymns, where the Israelites boasted in God and praised Him for the, the victories that they gave them in battle. But this is only the first third of our psalm. In fact, what follows shows that this psalm is really a psalm of lament. Hear what Pastor James Montgomery Boyce says about this. In Psalm 44, or if Psalm 44 had ended with verse 8, it would have been a victory hymn. It is positive, expectant, and trusting. But the psalm does not end there. It goes on to lament in verse 9 and following, which means that these opening verses, in spite of the positive statements, must have been uttered in a puzzling tone of voice. So we've looked at the past. Let's move on to our second heading now, the present. When we read verses 9 through 16 again for us, we can see the present situation that the Israelites find themselves in. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sound of the enemy and the avenger. Here we see the, the actual situation that the Israelites find themselves in. No longer is God giving them victory in battle. They find themselves defeated and struck down. Despite God's previous faithfulness, their, their present experience is making them think that God has abandoned them and left them for dead. Not only that, they feel as though God doesn't even care about them. Look again at verse 12. You sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. Their sense is that God is treating them like Joseph's brothers treated him in Genesis 37. They feel left alone and abandoned. They feel taunted by their neighbors like they're the laughing stock of the world. And so they ask themselves this question, why? Why would God allow this to happen? Why would God allow them to be overtaken by their enemies? Why would he permit this tragedy to, be, to come upon his beloved nation? And so the Israelites do what many of us would do in their situation. Many of us, when we face incredible failure and loss and hardship, we start to brainstorm what we may have done to deserve this. You'll recall a few weeks ago I preached through Psalm chapter 38, and, and that's exactly what happens in that psalm. That David had rebelled against God, and God was disciplining him in this life. And so the people of our psalm are wondering if maybe that's the case for them as well. Perhaps they've rebelled against God and God was disciplining them by making them lose in battle. So the next few verses, they're going to brainstorm in a sense and consider what they might have done to deserve this. And the answer they'll ultimately come to is they've done nothing. They've done nothing to deserve what's happening to them. They've been faithful to the covenant promises and covenant requirements that they should have been faithful to. And so they continue to wonder why. 
First, the people collectively consider that maybe they've just forgotten about God. Maybe their hearts have grown cold to him and they've neglected their relationship with the Lord. Look at verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. So they conclude after, I'm sure, a lot of inward speculation, they conclude that they've upheld their covenant. Now this word covenant is the same Hebrew word that we see used to describe God's promising blood-bound covenant oath to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. All these covenants had requirements. And I think these requirements are best summarized in the Ten Commandments. So perhaps the people walked through the Ten Commandments said, have we neglected to uphold the covenant requirements? Have we been obedient to God's revealed will? And the answer came back, no. They haven't rebelled. They haven't been false to the covenant. So then they turned to pondering the attitudes of their hearts. It says in verse 18, Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. They're essentially saying, God, our hearts have been loyal to you. We've followed your commands, we've been obedient to your will, and yet we've been soundly defeated. You may be wondering about that phrase, um, broken in the place of jackals. This is not a specific place where a battle happened. Rather, as Old Testament scholar Alec Motier suggests, jackals tend to inhabit places of great ruin and death. So the congregation was saying that their armies have experienced terrible loss of life despite the fact that they've been walking faithfully with God. So in seeking a reason for the failures they're facing, they know they haven't forgotten God's requirements. They haven't turned their backs from God. Their actions are still honoring to him. So the people begin to wonder, maybe they've started to worship some other God. And once again, the answer comes back, no. Look at verse 20 and 21. If we had forgotten the name of our God and spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. If they had been guilty of worshiping some other God, the Spirit would have pricked their consciences. He would have made them discover it. God would have seen the rebellion and convicted them of their sin, but the people, after discerning themselves for a while, conclude that they aren't being disciplined like David was in Psalm 38. So they're left wondering why. Why would God allow these things to happen? Why would God allow them to fail in battle? You can hear the agony in their voices, can't you? They're, they're heartbroken and asking God would allow them, why God would allow them to fail. Look at the heartbreaking tone of verse 22. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Have you been in a similar place before? Have you, in the course of your life, experienced tragedy and sorrow similar to the Israelites? Perhaps you've asked God these questions of why. Why are you allowing this to happen? And the hard part is that this psalm doesn't give us a firm and clear answer. We don't get some brilliant insight into why God is allowing the Israelites to experience the downfall of their military conquests. Instead, we see God's people left questioning. 
and wondering where God is in their midst. They know that he's active. They recognize that it's God permitting these defeats to take place. But they're still hurting. Let me quote James Boyce again. As for the believer, he may not understand God's ways, but he knows that the only way to proceed is by recognizing that God is as active in defeats as he is in victories. You hear that? That God is as active in defeat as he is in victories. And so far, our psalm has taken us through the past where they've remembered God's past and previous faithfulness. They've talked about their present situation and cried out in agony to God saying, why are you letting this happen? Let's move on to our third heading, the future. Let's look at how the congregation prays together in the midst of this agony and defeats and how they pray and expectantly hope that God will make a way in the future. Look at verse 23 and 24. They cry out, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? The section begins with a cry to God, begging him to wake up. This might call to mind for many of us a story from Jesus and his disciples. It's actually found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and I think in John as well. Where they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee on a boat together, and a massive torrential thunderstorm comes up out of nowhere, and the disciples feel like they're about to perish, that their boat is overflowing with water, they're going to sink at any moment. And so, what is Jesus doing at this moment? He's taking a nap in the stern of the boat. And so the disciples go to him, and let me read from Luke chapter 8. They went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? You can see the rebuke that Jesus gives his disciples here. He asks them, Where is your faith? The reality is the disciples had nothing to fear. The very Son of God who controls the wind and the waves was their traveling partner. But in the moment of crisis, they felt abandoned. They felt they were in grave danger, so they woke him up and begged him to do something. You know, for both the disciples in the boat and the Israelites in Psalm 44, the danger seemed so imminent they knew their only hope was for the Lord to rescue them. He was their only hope. And yet they still doubted. They forgot what Psalm 121 says, that behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It's ironic they cry out for God to wake up when God never slumbers nor sleeps. God doesn't need to rest like you and I do. In fact, he never rests from his providential protection and care over his covenant people. Without fail, he is always watching over his people. He was watching over the Israelites in Psalm 44. He was watching over the disciples in the boat with Jesus. Dear Christian, don't you know that Jesus is always watching over you? 
without fail. He's always sovereignly governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. He doesn't sleep. But from the perspective of the people in Psalm 44, it sure felt like he does. It seems as though God is resting somewhere and has neglected to notice the danger they're in. But they needed to remember, and we must remember as well, that God never slumbers nor sleeps. He always watches over his people. So they pray to him in verse 25. For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. We get the picture here of the the whole congregation crying out in desperation to the Lord. They're bowed down, laying on the ground in the most, most vulnerable position there is, right? Face down, belly to the ground, crying out, God, do something. But I want to focus on the last phrase of this sentence. Notice where they put their trust. They say, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This final plea for God to rescue them is rooted in God's steadfast, his covenant love. The people are again calling to mind the covenant that God had made with them, that he would never leave them nor forsake them, that he would be their God and they would be his people and nothing will ever change that. Commentator Alan Ross says the people knew that God had made a covenant with them and that he would keep the promises of that covenant because he loved them. They may have thought that God had cast them off for a moment, but they knew that they were the people of God and could trust in his steadfast love. It seemed for a moment that God had abandoned them, but God's covenant promises are still intact. He will never betray his covenant promises. At some point in the future, God will finally come to their aid. It may not happen in their ideal timing. It may not look the way they wanted it to, but they trust that God will act at some point, and we need to trust the same. In our moments of weakness, in our moments of great hardship, we need to trust that God will come to our aid. The psalm ends with a note of prayer. A note of desperation crying out for God to do something. Which means it it ends without an answer to the questions that they've been asking. The people have been crying out, why? They've been seeking an answer to why God is allowing this evil to happen. We haven't turned our backs from you. We haven't betrayed your covenant. Why are you sleeping? And at first glance, it seems as though they're left without even a glimpse of an answer. But I want to look once more at verse 22. There's one short phrase that I think gives us a glimmer of hope. The psalmist writes, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This seems like another cry of lament, complaining about the death that they've experienced, but look again at those first words. Yet for your sake. For the Lord's sake. It was for God's sake that the people were experiencing this tragedy. This should make us wonder, how is that the case? How can it be that God allows these defeats to happen for his sake? I think it's helpful to note how the New Testament authors 
quote from Psalm 44. Later on in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul will quote verse 22 right in the middle of that chapter. But he actually, he uses all of Psalm 44 to really inform his thinking in Romans 8. I think it's helpful for us to turn there for a second. So let me read a bit from Romans chapter 8. Verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We're reminded here that the lives of of Christians, that our lives will from time to time look like the situation that the Israelites found themselves in. We're promised tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. All of those things will come to pass in the lives of Christians. Jesus even says in John 16 that as long as we're in this world, we will have trouble. And yet Paul says, and the psalmist says, that these trials are for Christ's sake. They're for his glory. And they're ultimately for our good. We may not get to understand the fullness of that reality in this life. But it's true nonetheless that our persecutions, our trials, our dangers that we face are ultimately for the sake of Christ's name. And then Paul says that even when it looks like God's people are losing in battle, much like they were in Psalm 44, even then we can rest in the fact that through Christ, nothing can overcome us. Look at verse 37 of Romans 8. No, in all these things, in all that he just described from, from Psalm chapter 44, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So despite tribulations and distresses and persecutions that we face, dear Christian, we can know that there is nothing that will overcome us. Through our union with Christ, we can be sure that Christ will win, that he will reign triumphantly forevermore. So when Christ comes back, he will deal the final death blow to sin. Satan will be totally vanquished forever. Sin will be banished from existence for the rest of eternity. Temptation will be no more. Famine and war will be no more. Distress and persecution will be gone forever. And for the Christian, through our union with Christ, we are more than conquerors. We will get to enjoy the fullness of the presence of God with us for eternity. He will be our God and we will be his people. And because that is true, because of that great truth, through our union with Christ, we are more than conquerors. We can rest in the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from God's love. There will be moments when we feel like the congregation in Psalm 44. There will be moments when tribulation and distress and persecution and danger come upon us. There will be moments when we're called to suffer and we'll do it for God's sake. We'll endure it by his strength. And we'll endure with the knowledge of what Paul says in verse 39. Neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a sweet reminder those words are. To think that nothing in your created order will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. Please, Lord, write those truths upon our hearts. Please bring that truth to mind in moments of great hardship. When we feel like the congregation in Psalm 44, when we feel abandoned and hopeless, would you please remind us that all that comes upon us is for your sake and for your glory. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.